Hey, thanks so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. It's my pleasure every week to bring you the stories of the founders, farmers, innovators, and investors, people shaping the future of agriculture. Today's episode has some really important perspectives, especially for those of us, like myself, who don't see the effects of persistent hunger and poverty on a daily basis. I have on the show Paul Winters, who's the Associate Vice President of the Strategy and Knowledge Department of the International Fund for Agricultural Development, or EFAD. EFAD is part of the United Nations and is the only UN agency or international financial institution that works exclusively in rural areas. They work in around 100 different countries with the aim to eradicate rural poverty and hunger through agricultural development. Paul is an agricultural economist by training and holds a PhD in agricultural and resource economics from the University of California at Berkeley. Now, the first half of our conversation here today focuses on what agricultural development looks like in practice, and Paul shares several examples from different countries that he's worked in. The second half of our conversation focuses on some of the major challenges to global food security, including the fact that global poverty was improving until about 2015, but since that time, it's actually been getting worse. We talk about the catastrophic effects coronavirus and climate change will have on global food security in the future. For starters, though, I'll drop into the conversation here where Paul is talking about some of the challenges of trying to solve these complex problems in agricultural development. You have these multiple problems. I mean, agriculture, I, I admire farmers, right? Uh, the more I study, the more I, I realize how complicated it is. You're reliant on the weather, so you have all this risk. Because the weather is the same for everyone, prices go up and down. So you think this is a fantastic year, uh, and then the prices go go down because it's a fantastic year for everyone. Um, and so imagine this for uh, an African farmer. They have all those issues. It's hard to get credit. It's it's hard to get insurance. So all of these things are, are true uh, in in the United States, but they're even more true uh, or more complicated in other countries where you don't have the institutions. And so you have to solve multiple problems at once, and it requires uh, a degree of government support. You want people to be entrepreneurial and and you know manage their farms, but you need the help to of the government to kind of set up the situation so you can do it properly. So when things go bad. Um, so there's all these problems to address for something that's fairly fundamental to our existence, which is food. It's careful balance between trying to make sure that you're facilitating uh, the, the the natural abilities of farmers around the world, while at the same time not stifling them from allowing themselves to get ahead. Mm-hmm. And so in a situation like that, where let's say you're 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 consulting with a, a government that says, hey, look, we want to do what it takes. We want to build a program to support farmers to work their way out of poverty. I know what you just said is it's okay, that's extremely complex, but let's just assume the government's on board. Is there any common starting place or maybe can you point to an example of where significant progress has been made based on uh, government support? Well, I think the starting point is what you just said, is that the government needs to make a decision. This is the kind of thing you want to do. So if, as an example, I was uh, about a year ago talking to the Minister of Agriculture in Rwanda, 
and she the the eastern part of the country is is very poor it's agriculturally based um, they they see a lot of opportunity there and so they want to expand irrigation uh, and with irrigation uh, there's a lot more different kinds of opportunity you can shift from maize production to horticultural crops for small scale producers that don't have you know huge tracts of land uh, that horticulture is more labor intensive it works well with irrigation so her starting point is I want to address poverty and use agriculture. The main way she wants to do that is through irrigation, but irrigation is not going to be enough. So you have to provide the irrigation. And then you have farmers that have historically produced maize. They need to know how to produce uh, horticultural crops. To do that, they're not just going to sell horticultural crops like they do maize, where they, they put it all together and they sell it collectively. They need to be linked to markets because you're you're producing lettuce and you got to get it to the market. So you don't just have to train them to get horticultural crops. You have to train them. How do we link to markets? You have to have the technology to do that. Um, and and cell phones are widely available now, but you still have to be able to use them. So there's this whole series of steps. So what she wanted my organization to do is help them with that. So it requires both having expertise in irrigation but also in organizing farmers to kind of work together to get the critical mass for markets and to, to think of what, what are all the problems that could potentially happen in the meantime that stop you from meeting that objective. And then to learn as you go along because new problems are gonna come up that you didn't think of. I mean, fortunately, uh, we do have a lot of experience in trying to do this, both my organization and others. You know, we provide finance. Um, so we provide loans to governments, uh, concessional rates if they're poor, and grants if they're really poor countries. But what they really want is less our money than our technical expertise, right? They want us to draw lessons from other places we can bring there from the U.S., but also from other parts of Africa or other parts of Asia, Latin America, and bring those kind of expertise uh, around the world so that we can learn lessons that can help with these types of things. Sure. And I, I'm sure one of those areas of expertise has to be, how do you provide support without just building a reliance on your support? And I, that's probably a complicated question, but, you know, from a from a high level perspective, sort of how do we approach that problem? Yeah. So you always want to start a project with an exit strategy, because what ended up happening in the past is a lot of agricultural projects would come in. And the only way they could survive is if you constantly gave people more money. And we've learned a long time ago that that just doesn't work. The governments don't have the money, right? They, they can't afford it. So what you have to do is think of, how can I do this one-off investment? So three, four, five years, I'm going to spend money. After that, I've spent that money. How do I make sure that it's going to remain sustainable and I can get out? Uh, and so for that investment in irrigation, think of the things you have to do. The irrigation infrastructure needs to be managed. And if you say the government's going to do it, then it requires the government's going to pay for it. So in all of those, we put in water use associations. Those water use associations have to pay a fee. That fee and their own labor has to go in to in order to manage the irrigation system. So except for occasional big investment, where sometimes you need to go in with you know, more concrete to line, line uh, the irrigation canals, things like that. Generally, though, it should be self-sustainable. The same is true with all the market interactions. You want them to be organized. You want to help them to identify who they could sell to. But ultimately, the buyers and sellers have to work in a market. And so you really do have to think from the very beginning of what your exit strategy is. 
your role, you know, as the International Fund for Ag Development, I, I know you said you provide financing to the government, you provide technical expertise and advice. Uh, will you also come in and manage the project from beginning to end? No, the governments themselves do that. So we help them design, but you want government ownership, right? It's it's not our job to tell them uh, what to do. It's to provide the technical expertise, right? In my role, I meet a lot of ministers of agriculture and, and they know what they want. They just aren't sure how to get there. For example, in Africa, there's this huge youth bulge. So there's a lot of young people and a lot of them in rural areas because uh, people have more kids when they're poor and there's more poor people in rural areas. So fertility rates are quite high in rural areas. And so they, they need to know what to do with this large amount of young people in rural areas. Now, some will migrate, but some will stay. And you want to give them opportunities. They don't want to do the farming of their parents. They don't want, you know, the backbreaking work of, you know, working with maize or wheat or potatoes and staple crops and, you know, digging with implements. They want a more modern agriculture. You know, I heard this young person talk he reached in his pocket and said, I'm going to show you my most important agricultural implement, the thing that makes me most productive. And he pulls out and he shows us all his cell phone. And he said, this is the most important. It's not my tractor. It's not my backpack sprayer. It's my cell phone because this is the future of agriculture. So they have these goals. We want young people to be entrepreneurial. We want them in agriculture. We want them to do really interesting things. And we want you to help us figure out how to do that. So for an example, with youth, one of the things is we're, we're in, the, in the past, we did a lot of vocational training, training of, of young people to be farmers. And it doesn't, it doesn't work. You, you train them and then, then you leave. And then the, a new problem comes up that they can't solve. And so now what we're doing is these incubators, a lot of what's done in like Silicon Valley, right? Is so we have these incubator programs where we're, again, we don't want to stay there forever, so, or the government. So we create these incubators where we team them up with someone who's older entrepreneurial farmer. So we, we train them uh, and then we get, link them up with these other entrepreneurs. We keep around for, for uh, uh, six months to a year. We help them along that period. We get them started. We potentially help them with finance if needed, but then we have these centers where they can go to ask questions. And we have someone that's a mentor to them to help them move along. And it's remarkable the things uh, that you can do. And so we're, we're doing these youth agripreneur uh, projects around Africa right now. Uh, the German government's given us some funding for this and with this incubator model. So it's, it's a way to help them achieve the objectives they want, um, but with our technical support and our finance that we help facilitate. Hmm. And is the idea to to train them on entrepreneurship and business skills, or are you also giving them sort of technical training on, you know, uh, agronomic and animal husbandry type skills? It's both. A lot of them, though, come from agricultural backgrounds. So they basically lived and breathed it. And, and that doesn't mean they're on the technical cutting edge, but it means that they understand, you know, crop cycles, they understand livestock. So so they come from that background. In fact, those are often the best ones, the ones that kind of grew up there, managed to get their education and and have that potential. And now you just need they need the opportunities um, and so, yes, we do train them in the, in the agro, uh, agronomic practices, but usually the focus is more on cutting edge technology because they have the basic, the basic understanding already. In fact, and one of the challenges we face is a lot of their parents don't want them to go into agriculture. I mean, you talk to, I, I remember asking a group of farmers, 
what do you, what do you want your kids to do? This was in Bangladesh. So I was there with a bunch of ambassadors that came from our organization and asked all these, these parents, basically, do you want your kids to be farmers? And across the board, pretty much all of them said no. Uh, and the reason is, is because of the challenges they face and they, they worry about their children. And some of the kids were saying, no, we want to do it. We, we just want to be more entrepreneurial, right? We want to, we, we want to be able to, to see agriculture as a business. So from their parents, they have basic agriculture. What they don't have is that entrepreneurial capacity, business management, thinking agriculture as a business. And this is one of the mantras that we constantly have is that, you know, farming is the private sector. Farming is a business. And we need to think of it that way. You know, another example is I was at this big youth forum in, and also in Rwanda in Kigali. And this young woman stands up and, and you know, I'm on the on this panel with a group of UN officials and, and ministers. And she holds up a picture from a UN agency that has this elderly woman in basically dirty clothes with corn behind her and saying, um, she, and this young woman says, you guys are the problem. This is the image of agriculture in Africa you're spreading around the world. This picture of farming is drudgery. Farming is not drudgery. I'm an entrepreneur. I could be a good farmer. Quit telling the world that it's something that's difficult. Tell them that it's something that can get you ahead, that can improve your lives, that can drive growth in rural areas. And she was right. And she called this out uh, collectively. And I think we are changing our, our way of looking at these things. Um, and governments themselves are changing it as agriculture could be a driver of growth, of poverty reduction. Uh, and so it's a real shift in the attitude that's happened over the last decade. And for for you, do you deal in those kind of more social issues of, for example, you know, the treatment of women in in uh, some of these uh, societies? Is that is that central to the role in 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 what you do? Yeah, no. In, in fact, we have what's we have a, a gender mainstreaming agenda, right? So that we are pushing gender in all of our projects. In a lot of countries, and this is more true in Sub-Saharan Africa than elsewhere, but in a lot of countries, women have their own plots, and so you can compare men and women's plots and productivity. Uh, women get about 20 to 30 percent less inputs in their plots, which means that they get uh, significantly less yields. So just purely in terms of uh, improving production, addressing women's issues is important for it, for getting more production overall because women do manage a lot of plots. But the intra-household dynamics is also extremely important. Who gets income in a household determines what happens in terms of health and education and it's not to say, you know, that men necessarily use money in a, in a bad way, but they don't always use it to for the health and education for their children. And there is, on average, women tend to be better in those areas. And so we do address those issues all the time. Um, and you also see a lot of mistakes being made in development by failing to recognize these issues. You know, there's classic examples from the past. For example, I think it was in Zambia where they went and they they trained all the men in production, and I can't remember the crop. I think it might have been yams. They trained all the men in production of, of the crop, and it turned out that was mostly a woman's crop. So they're training men on production of something they generally don't produce, uh, and they should have been training women. And so you need to understand the household dynamics to even just be successful as an agricultural organization. So issues like gender and youth are always part of every project we do. Um, we also worry about nutrition for the reasons that we talked about, that income gains aren't enough. You need to be conscious of making sure people have gains in nutrition. 
And of course, you know, climate change is a big issue for farmers around the world. And so we're also always cognizant of environmental issues, climate issues. We want long-term sustainability. Uh, so those four issues are addressed in every project we do. We just kind of make sure that they're, they're being considered. Uh, and then we try to deal with particular constraints linked to those in all projects. Maybe catch us up to speed a little bit in terms of the global state of poverty. Obviously, anyone who's living in constant hunger is too many people. Uh, you know, one person is too many. Has the trend improved uh, over time in your tenure in this field? Uh, or what? what is kind of the current state of, you know, global poverty today? Right. So uh, there's poverty and, and hunger. And so let me talk a, a bit about ah, both of those. Yeah. So, so poverty uh, and hunger were both on the decline between 1990 and 2015. And we're doing quite well. The numbers of both are between 700 and 800 million, roughly around the world, that are either poor or hungry. Since 2015, though, uh, poverty reduction is kind of stagnated. We're still making progress, meaning there's less poor, but it's kind of flattening out. And that's partly because uh, a lot of East Asia, you know, things have gotten pretty good. Poverty is reduced. In South Asia, we've made progress, but it's kind of also flattening out. But in Sub-Saharan Africa, things are increasing. Latin America, too, things are flattening out. So you see this kind of areas where we had made a lot of progress for 25 years uh, are, are they're reaching kind of chronic poverty. So there's parts of Mexico, Brazil, of the Andean region, of India, of Indonesia, where you're getting to kind of the harder pockets of poverty. So you're you're flattening it. But then there's places in sub-Saharan Africa where things are actually gotten worse. And so poverty is kind of flattening. Hunger is actually, though, on the increase since 2015. And so we we reached a point where the, you know, the, the undernourished in the world was just under 700 million. But in the last five years, that's been increasing. And so it's it's gone back up. So the concern is that we're continuing to go up. And there, there's three basic drivers of that. The first is conflict. So there's a lot of places in the world. So you see places like Syria, where, you know, it was a upper middle income country. And now things are quite bad. So you see conflict in Syria, Yemen, lots of North Africa, the Sahel. So that's one of the big drivers. There's climate change is, you know, a reality and weather patterns are changing. We see that in particular in parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, and they are changing the the weather patterns. And, and, and it just it, it affects agriculture uh, the most. Just because of climate change, the estimate is about 100 million more people will be poor uh, by 2030. And about half of that's just agriculture. So half of those are farmers. So 50 million more poor because of climatic changes that are occurring. Um, that's partly due to weather pattern changes, but also pests. So we see pests emerging in areas that didn't uh, weren't there before. Um, we see these, you know, uh, recurrent events on that. Um, and then the third thing is economic slowdowns. So, you know, we've we had a nice streak of growth for the last 20, 25 years, and there are places that have slowed down. And, you know, Latin America has had some slowdowns. Uh, China's done well, but it's starting to slow down a bit. Other places. And so all the combination of those three things has made things a little bit, first a little stagnant and now getting worse. There's a, a reason. This is all before COVID. And so this was all happening anyway. And even before COVID, there was a, a paper by the World Bank that basically uh, poverty is also concentrating. So the estimates vary, but 
70, 80% of poverty is going to be in about 30 to 40 countries. And so there's a lot of countries that are just being left behind. Uh, and it's because of those reasons I just said. And so we really have to start concentrating our efforts in those areas. Now, that being said, then COVID comes along and uh, has a particularly, is causing all sorts of problems in agriculture in particular. Um, so I know it's a health crisis, but it's created an economic crisis. The estimates vary from anything from 50 million more people in poverty uh, immediately just because of this to up to 120 million more people in poverty. Um, a lot of those are going to be in rural areas. And so those numbers that I just gave you, anywhere from 10 to 15 years of progress could be lost in one year because of COVID. And in, in effect, you know, all the gains of globalization that have occurred could be lost. You know, there's a lot of controversy over how globalization's helped or hurt, but for some countries, clearly there's been growth that's been driven by that, and that's been helpful in reducing in poverty. And in rural areas, you know, it creates opportunities for markets to sell. And so uh, COVID is disrupting those markets. You know, 70% of the projects of my organization, right, of EFED, um, are value chain projects. So what we try to do is link small-scale producers to higher value markets. So uh, as an example, in, in Ecuador, you know, there's this group that's trying to link small-scale potato producers to uh, Frito-Lay directly to supermarkets. And to do that, you need the right kind of uh, variety. So there's a variety called Gabriella for whatever reason. Gabriella is good frying qualities. And so they they like it for, for Lay's potato chips. I interviewed the, the person in charge of, of buying commodities for Frito-Lay in Ecuador. And he basically told me, we're happy to buy from small-scale producers, but we're not dealing with a thousand of them. And so organizations like mine have to organize them and do what I said before, meet the quality and timing standards, and companies are open to this possibility. So that's what was done. So that's an opportunity, right? That's part of the global market, even though it's a local market. It's that you have these companies that come in and are meeting new urban demand, but at, for a high-value market. So if you can get these poor farmers, so a poor farmer in Ecuador would go from $3 a bag of potatoes to $11 a bag of potatoes if they can get to the Frito-Lay market. And so that's what we're trying to do. And so so we did, you know, those kind of projects of the type that we did. Now with COVID, a lot of those markets are being disrupted because of the social distancing. And so we have videos being sent by farmers, you know, the Asia, Asian Farmers Association sent us a video showing farmers dumping fresh lettuce off the back of trucks because they couldn't get into the urban market. You know, this is exactly, we've sold them a, a model of you can get ahead by, you know, tapping into high value markets, being entrepreneurial, all of these things. And I agree, that is the, the model we should sell them for small scale producers in particular, because they have lots of labor and they can do this kind of work. Uh, but then COVID's really disrupted this. Now we have to, you know, try to build back better. And actually in some ways, local markets might have an advantage in a post COVID world. Uh, because of the disruption in global markets, you might see a, a, an advantage of a shortened value chain. But we need to make sure that we help facilitate that. Um, so to, to get back to your question about what's happened, we already saw some issues of, of rural poverty and hunger occurring since the last five years. So progress had stopped and is even starting to get worse. And now with COVID, we're going to have a, this big jump. And so a lot of what's going to happen, what we do now, will really determine what happens in, in, in terms of poverty and hunger. The response that we have 
uh, in the next year or so, we're really uh, determined whether COVID becomes uh, a further push towards increasing poverty and hunger, or we use it as an opportunity to try to deal with some of the issues that we had anyway, and a broader response to poverty and hunger around the world. Yeah. So we're all in this this moment now, uh, as you alluded to earlier, uh, the threat of, you know, 10 to 15 years of global agricultural development progress uh, being, you know, being set back by the pandemic. Uh, as a strategist, you know, what what can we do? What needs to be done to make sure that doesn't happen, that we can kind of get back on track? And I know like with everything right now, there's a ton of ifs because there's so much uncertainty out there. But as you think about that, what's, you know, what's top of mind that we could share with the audience? Um, one is I, I, we, we've learned a lot of lessons about what potentially uh, could work to help uh, small scale producers take advantage of opportunities. And a lot of this is around linking to urban markets. You know, the, the world's changed from 30 years ago. Pretty much everywhere you go now, there's supermarkets. People buy out of supermarkets, whether in Nairobi or in Delhi or in Lima. It, it's not, you know, these open markets that you used to have. These are higher value markets. They have quality. There's lots of restaurants. You know, the, the world is getting a middle class that demands these kinds of goods. And there's a lot of opportunities there. As we build back, we need to take advantage of these opportunities. And I alluded to this before, that there's a potential for a lot of local production to meet the demands in in local markets. Um, And those aren't just in these open markets, but in high value markets and restaurants, et cetera. You know, here in, you know, in the United States, there's a lot of people that like to purchase food that's produced locally. There's lots of people that like to go to restaurants that buy their meat, their cheese, etc. locally. And, you know, we shouldn't stifle trade. That's an important thing. But encouraging the purchase of local goods is not such a bad thing. It supports the local economy. And it's with COVID, it's going to be uh, challenging to have a lot of the trade anyway, because we still see restrictions. So this is an alternative path, right? This focus more on local production. To do that, though, we need to do a lot of what we're doing. And I do also think to think we need to probably bring up our game in terms of not lack of a better word, digital agriculture, precision agriculture, all of these types of things. We see this a lot in, in the United States and Europe. The potential is there. Cell phones are everywhere around the world now. It's remarkable uh, what you see in incredibly rural areas in very poor countries. People still have a cell phone. A lot of them have smartphones, and there's a lot of potential there. And so to take this crisis as an opportunity to invest in digital platforms to do a lot of work, it's a great opportunity. So I, th- I think we can do that and to, to allow a lot of direct connections. Um, there's, a, there's a group that uh, started called Precision Agriculture for Development. And, and Michael Kramer, who's uh, won the Nobel Prize in Economics, um, is one of the founders of that group. The idea there, and they've shown empirically, right? So he got the Nobel Prize for assessing the impact of new innovations on on poor people around the world. Um, And part of his areas of expertise is agriculture. And based on some of the information he's done in precision agriculture, he's found that you can get substantial increases in yields for these very poor farmers just by providing them information across their cell phones. And you need to do a lot of learning and tailoring and all the things we've talked about, but it works. Taking that model and trying to expand it to to a broader uh, audience through um, 
through this precision agriculture, I think is a great opportunity. So those are the kinds of institutions that we need to kind of take a jump up. And so I, I, I think we we have a sense of the types of things that could work. And so what we need is a concerted effort, both into parts of governments, international institutions, and then donor countries that have the funding to make a push in that area. And so the question that's out there is, you know, are countries uh, that have the funding going to step up? And I know this is a difficult time for everyone. Uh, budgets are going to be tight because, you know, of COVID, there's recessions around the world. But one is, you know, practically speaking, if these countries end up in huge problems, you, you we end up paying for it one way or the other through humanitarian crises or other issues, refugees, et cetera. So we should think ahead and try to do something. But even just morally, you know, we should be helping. We should be providing leadership that provides some support to these other countries, along with helping those that are struggling in our own countries. Um, it's it's not one or the other. Money can go a very long way in some of these poor countries, and to provide some of that support uh, would be extremely helpful. Thanks so much to Paul Winters for taking time to be on the show. Look, I know that these are heavy topics, talking about hunger and poverty around the world, but I absolutely think that any conversation about the future of agriculture must include food security and a hard look at these complicated problems. I really appreciate people like Paul that are out there working on these and, of course, willing to come onto the show and help enlighten us into the reality of this situation. Hey, special thank you to all of those of you who have taken time to reach out with feedback on this show. Good, bad, or indifferent, uh, any feedback is welcome. These past six months have been kind of a mess for me. So hearing from you, hearing that people are listening to the show, and especially those of you who are finding value in it, really has been the fuel I've needed to keep putting episodes out every week. So I want to give you my sincere thank you for that. Thanks also for your time and your attention. I really don't take it lightly. We'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Oh, 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 oh,